Previously on Hound Radio's Arch Campbell podcast. I was watching one episode very late at night and I always try to be quiet so as not to disturb everyone. But at the end of the episode, I just very lovely. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm excited for people to start watching them because holding all of this in has just been very bad for me. I need to, mm. need to be able to yell about this with other people. Well, you know, the first season I binged, which, which I think of maybe overdosed, it's, <laughs> it's a better word for it. The Arch Campbell podcast featuring Arch, Lou Katz, and a cast of thousands begins now. Well, hello again, everybody. And here we are one more time. And uh, we were talking about the morning show last week on Apple TV, which I, I say is not a binge, but an overdose. <laughs> Are you are you watching that, Lou? Yes, I am. In fact, uh, my wife Wendy and I watched the uh, the s- second episode of season two last night. And uh, <laughs> it's, what do you it's think? Just, it's like it's like the TV set. A big fist comes out and socks me in the nose. <laughs> we, now this. <laughs> Well, you know, Reese Witherspoon, correct me if I'm wrong, but it appears yeah. that some of her country-ish, I don't want to say twang in her delivery, but that sort of country, you know, she was from wherever when she before she met, hit the big network. Seems I think to she's have, from Nashville. Nashville. Seems to have disappeared. Yeah. Maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just me picking up on that, but... Uh. I think I think this second episode was a little better than the first. What did you think? She's a brand now. She she manufactures yeah. a lot of material and uh, and she's very successful at it. I just I find it amusing that it's so 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 out there. So uh, so riled up. Hey, I want to mention very quickly that I received an email from member Royland Lee Boyke. Oh, I remember her. Remember sure, Royland Boyke. Yeah the president of the Washington, D.C. Body Heat Society. Yes, yes, she was fun. (laughs) And she was on this podcast for the 40th anniversary of Body Heat. And she sent a list of five hot movies to watch if in case you can't access Body Heat. And so here they are. Go ahead. The first is Wild Things from 1998 with Matt Dillon and Denise Richards, and Teresa Russell, and uh, a bunch of other people. I remember, I'm not even going to go into the plot of it. I, th- I think I'd get uh, thrown uh, out of the universe. So here, here's her list. Wild Things, Henry and June, American Beauty, Unfaithful with Diane Lane, and The Crying Game. So those are five hot movies from Royland Boyke, president of the Body Heat Society. And I I bring those up because I think it's a good way to introduce our good friend and our guest this week, all the way from L.A. He's a film professor, a great uh, entertainment writer. He lives in L.A. and he's got D.C. roots 
dating back to the great Davy Marlon Jones. He's Davy's son, our friend Oliver Jones. Hello, All right. Oliver. All right, Oliver. Are you an arch? I'm, I'm still contemplating those body heat movies. Uh, which one of those are you going to fire up? The uh, I'll have to wait until a night my wife is out of <laughs> is out with her friends. I, you know, I'm. I think I might watch the Crying Game again. Yeah, because I remember going to the screening of that, and uh, if we were at the Outer Circle Theater on Wisconsin Avenue, and uh, and the reveal of the Crying Game, it was one of the great movies where nobody revealed the twist right. at the end, and when the twist was revealed, the twist was like two thirds of the way through. I still remember the audience gasping. Yes. It was a complete full house. It was so full that they let me in and I sat on the steps by the exit uh, at the rear of the outer circle. And then that twist happened in the crying game. And I don't want to give it away, but uh, I might refer you to uh, Some Like It Hot and the end, the end line, which is, nobody's perfect. <laughs> Oh boy, so, nobody's gonna be able to figure it out, Arch. Um, <laughs> but yeah, those moments, that collective um, gasp or whatever. Yeah, boy, don't yeah. you wish that to your bones, Arch? Oh, but, I uh, just, I love it, and I, I so, I'm so afraid that we're losing it. Losing it. I have. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to go to um, see the new James Bond movie tomorrow at the Man's Chinese Theater at noon. Which oh, is probably the same great. time that it's premiering in um, for its big London premiere. So we're watching uh -huh. it more or less at the same time. Um, it's a three-hour movie. It's a three-hour James Bond movie. Name? Bond. James Bond. Why would I betray you? We all have our secrets. You just didn't get to yours yet. So I'm so going now to... Are, does that include... I wonder if they're going to show you the red carpet in London and then show the movie. I mean, all I'm thinking about is that's a long time to be sitting down in a room full of people, uh, right? Um, I bet you that they show you stuff from London and yeah. then uh, the film. That could be interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, how how can the Bond movies still be relevant? How, how can they still keep us watching? Because it's the same thing. It's the same thing as in 1964 when I went to see Goldfinger. I guess isn't that it, Arch? Uh, it, it's sort of a thrill comfort food, right? It's it's a, a combination. Of, I mean, it's like um, it's like baked Alaska. It's ice cream, but it's on fire, right? <laughs> uh, it's something both exciting and comforting at the same time. But probably of all of those you've seen, I mean, um, Daniel Craig is certainly among the most skilled actors that have played that part. Uh, so, and, and this is his last time at bat, uh, I, I guess at least that's how they're marketing it. And I, I certainly believe it. And, uh, so th there is a, a, watching the different actors navigate the roles, uh, has been kind of interesting, but I don't know, I guess it's just a, it, it's a sort of, uh, sentimentalism tied with a desire for, um, to have your mind blown by car chases. Uh, so I, I guess there's something human in that, Arch. You know, that's another example from the 60s. 
mm-hmm. of uh, there'd be the opening scene of the Bond movie and people would just start laughing and gasping and then there'd be the credit sequence and then you would go into the story and uh, and it's that same recipe. <laughs> Not only is it the same recipe, but it's been corny and it's been sexist for 30 years, right? I mean, right. It's, yeah. we've been laughing at and it also like questioning, um, you know, the, 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 the health of it uh, for a long, long time. That's not something that we've done recently. That's something that, you know, you were probably doing in the, in the mid 1980s arch, if not before that. Probably something I should have been doing <laughs> in the 1980s. Are you going to screenings? Are you going to many movies? Yes. I mean, I'm still seeing screening links, but I'm starting to slowly like, um, a bear emerging from his cave uh, <laughs> to the actual screening rooms. And, but three hours in a crowded movie theater gives me a pause, you know. Is, it, uh, is that going to be with uh, uh, the public uh, yeah, the screening gonna you're going public. to? Oh, um, man. Oh, so man. Uh, uh, masks are required, I guess, and, uh, and so is a uh-huh. proof of vaccination. But I'm still mm-hmm. nervous. I, I won't deny it. Um, It'll probably also, take you an extra three hours to enter the theater. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've heard stories of that, where uh, airplanes and other areas where you get in line and then you have to show your your proof, uh, and it's taking longer and longer. Bob Mondello was on this podcast from NPR a few weeks ago, and he said, "Well, you can go to a matinee." Mm-hmm. And there's nobody there. I went to see Respect, the yeah. uh, Aretha Franklin movie at the Avalon Theater in Chevy Chase. And there were 10 people in a theater that seats 350. So, so we, we, yeah, I felt, you know, I felt okay. Uh, and I went to see the card counter at the Landmark Theater, which has reopened now. And first it was me and another woman. So she was on the other side of the theater and I was sitting there and she says, well, here we are for our private screening. Then <laughs> <laughs> the bubble burst, two other people walked in. Oh, and then sucks. once it started, an additional. So there were six of us in there. So the and I'm going... Corner. Is a, is more of an art, you know, is a, sort of an art house movie, the kind of movie that yeah, you've seen, yeah. um, you know, that that feels uh, that feels like a throwback to the seventies or eighties. Uh, what was it seeing a movie like that in a movie theater for you, Arch? It was again. It was a reminder of those things you just love about slipping into a movie theater and watching this dreamlike fantasy that you knew was, you know, that you were halfway holding your breath, wondering what was that character going to, it's Paul Schrader, uh, who is, and and you uh, posted a a review online at the card counter. This is an Oliver Jones kind of movie, right? Yeah, well, this is Paul Schrader being as Paul Schrader as he can be. He's essentially um, uh, made similarly themed or written similarly themed scripts throughout his entire career. You know, this is a variation on um, the movie that he did a few years back, uh, first performed with um, uh, with Ethan Hawke. And then before right. that, of course, he um, 
He wrote The Taxi Driver for um, Martin Scorsese. And then in the years in between, he did a movie called Light Sleeper about a drug sleeper. And all of them were isolated men, um, isolated from themselves and from society, mm -hmm. looking for some kind of connection or redemption. And it all stems from the great work of Robert Bresson, the great French, French filmmaker, and specifically the movie that he made, um, Pickpocket. So Paul Schrader has been remaking the Pickpocket over and over again for the last 30 years, which is actually kind of great. Um, you know, he he finds sort of richness in the theme. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, and also, unlike Brisson, he he has some really serious actors in the lead role. And yeah. um, in this case, Oscar Isaac, what did you think of him? I mean, I, I thought he was I, just terrific in this role. He was perfect for it, just yeah. perfect. You count cards, right? I'm not that smart. But you win. You need someone to stake you. That's what you do, you run a stable. I'm always looking for a good thoroughbred. <laughs> you have to be the strangest poker player I ever met. Oh, you have no idea. The only thing I thought is maybe he could have inserted Joaquin Phoenix instead. <laughs> it reminded me a little bit of The Master, which is a movie I loved with the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, it's a movie Joaquin I adore. Yeah, it's a movie I adore too. And I don't know if you saw this um, yesterday, but the new Paul Thomas Anderson film, Licorice Pizza, has a, a trailer. And the star of the film is Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. Oh, um, wow. Connor Hoffman, yeah. Uh, playing a teenager in the 1970s um, uh, Valley. Uh, and it's sort of a first love story. So um, for those of, of us who love Philip Seymour Hoffman and particularly love the combination, uh, like in The Master of, um, of Paul Thomas Anderson and Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm -hmm. that's a very emotional film to, uh, or trailer to, to catch. And, and struck me as the kind of movie we're gonna get less and less of mm -hmm. as streaming just takes over. Is the box office down 60%? Yes, I mean, to the point that everything in Hollywood is shifting, right? The whole economics of it is shifting. And yesterday we saw a, a seismic uh, shift with um, a CAA acquiring ICM Partners, which is um, sort of uh, a, a big uh, agency out here that, were, that was big in yeah. publishing. So the whole economics of the place, now we're down to, uh, uh, three major agencies, but really two big ones, and then um, and then UTA. So everything is consolidating. Arch, you know, um, media is consolidating. Media representation is consolidating. And um, and last night, I, I I don't know if you got a chance to watch this on um, on PBS, the new Citizen Hearst. Uh, yes, I saw the first episode of it. The genius of American businessmen has developed the wealth of the nation and created the highest standard of employment of any country in the world. Speaking of media con consolidation, yeah. uh, uh, what did you think of it? It's all William Randolph Hearst's fault. Right. That's, that's, that's the origin story for the mess that we're in right now. It's all his fault. And the fact that he hated Joseph Pulitzer. Yes. <laughs> and Pulitzer started the Pulitzer Prize because he felt so bad about the yellow journalism feud between uh, the journal and the world back in at the turn of the century.
I still think it is worth saying, in spite of all of the wonderful apps and streaming services, that PBS just does some wonderful material. This, the Citizen Hearst thing. I, highly, I recommend two episodes of Citizen Hearst, followed by a chaser of Citizen Kane. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Well, throughout uh, watching um, Citizen Hearst, I just kept hollering lines, you know, from Citizen. So you think it would be to run a newspaper, you know? I just couldn't help myself uh, throughout the whole film. Um, but it was, um, it, it, it certainly was not difficult to see in his quest for circulation and for growth above all else and sort of, um, a nose for capitalism much more so than a nose for morality, right? In in seeing similarities to uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook or or Amazon, I mean, it's really not hard to see the media moguls now um, in in the the Hearst story. Well, um, one of the things I got out of Citizen Hearst is that when he st he started as a lost leader, he just poured millions and millions and millions into his newspaper. And that's the same thing with Amazon. Remember yeah. when Amazon started, people said, he's losing uh, millions on this. How is this gonna, how's this gonna uh, work? And suddenly uh, it's everywhere. Well, the, 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 the point being growth and the point being also uh, wiping out your competitors. And of course he did that, uh, Hearst did that through um, populism, right? And his populism swung in all sorts of ideological directions. <laughs> You know, when he was when it was um, popular to support unions, he did so until the unions turned on him. Uh, and there was a, a big part of the film that was about the um, the newsies, the newsboys union. Yes. Uh, which was shocking that a bunch of, you know, 10 to 14 year olds could organize like that and strike. Uh, it was very inspiring. We're going to give the Hearst Corporation demonstration after demonstration until they're ready to quit. But then he could he would, of course, swing in the other direction with his terribly racist rhetoric and, and uh, profoundly racist beliefs. Um, so so he was a populist at all cause uh, without ideology. Uh, I was thinking of the Joseph Cotton speech when Cotton uh, leaves for Chicago about how uh, <laughs> Citizen Kane has changed his stripes mm -hmm. and suddenly is he's for the people until he's not for the people. And of course, that sounds like Facebook and Amazon and everything else. Uh, we can, you know, all of these uh, Titan uh, tech things are fine. They're for us until they're not. Massive amounts of money is quite the vampire bite, right? It's just hard <laughs> to come back from. Uh, and I think um, especially when you're maybe not profoundly principled and, um, and he was not. But, you know, you talked about him uh, uh, being a loss leader. That wasn't his money. It was his mother's money. Yes. Uh, so he had to go ask for his, ask his mother until he was 50 <laughs> years old every time he wanted to do anything, uh, which, um, which was interesting aspect of the story, too. You're in California, and I thought they would mention that Phoebe Hearst uh, gave the money and built uh, a Silomar up on the Monterey Coast, which is one of my favorite places in the world, the Asilomar State Park and lodging area. There's a, a woman architect from the early part of the century, Morgan 
I forget her for uh, Julia Morgan. That's right. I think. And uh, and they didn't mention that. So, but well, they, uh, they did mention all of the um, work, uh, the buildings that she built for um, uh, University yeah, Berkeley. of uh, California Berkeley campus, um, including the the women's gym and the library there. And um, I think those are Julia Morgan uh, buildings as well. Right. Yeah. So there you are. So, but the uh, Citizen Hearst is is delightful. And speaking of PBS. I just finished the Muhammad Ali series that Ken Burns put together, which is again, just a great history lesson uh, and a reminder of the uh, ups and downs of Muhammad Ali's life. Without any further introduction, Muhammad Ali. I have too much to fight for, cause to fight for. The price of freedom comes high. I have paid, but I am free. To pair that, with a chaser of Spike Lee's Malcolm X film mm -hmm. would just be another delightful weekend yeah. <laughs> of film festival. And yeah. I guess that's what we're gonna have. We're gonna right. have to create our own film festivals, huh? Well, that, that's the rest of our lives, isn't it, Arch? Uh, just, uh, <laughs> uh, the longer, the better. Just, you know, keep them coming, Ken Burns. Eight, 10 hours, it's all we got. You know? um, <laughs> But I watched two uh, uh, last night through the um, the Liston fight, and you know um, the hype of that first Liston fight, uh, and the way that Ali was able to hype it. You know, you uh -huh. thought to yourself while watching it, like, boy, what would have this been like if Twitter was around back then? But then you thought yes. to yourself, it was because Ali was like a walking Twitter. You know, he not uh -huh. only fought, he did all of the talking, he did all of this promotion. I mean, his genius for um for hype and for promotion has been untouched you know uh and um and it was a genius you know i think now where, where we you know find economic value and in, in influencers and ability to shape the conversation you know um we we can recognize more fully exactly how good he was at um at shaping uh the national imagination and 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 the national consciousness you know um it was a it was a kind of genius that has been uh basically unmatched but the film overall i did feel like there was a reliant on a lot of voices that i've heard you know in past uh ken burns movies or i've heard sort of pontificate on ali in the past and I yeah heard, yeah we have heard some some new voices. I mean, David Remnick, the former um, Washington Post sports writer, who's now the editor of The New Yorker and has written yes. a, book, a wonderful book on Muhammad Ali. You know, he was a pr uh, prominent speaker, but I have to say, I kind of heard everything that David has to say on, Mah on Muhammad Ali, and I think I'm ready to hear some other voices. Uh, well, but I wonder if Ken Burns gets a hold of somebody, sits them down, and then asks him about a dozen or so yeah, different right, characters. Exactly. And suddenly, what, are your, what are your thoughts on Barry Gordy? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, suddenly, 10 years later, you think, man, that guy looks good. Right. <laughs> I did enjoy um, Walter Mosley, the, the the great LA uh, crime writer, and also right, um, right. Michael uh, Bent, the former boxer who played Sonny Liston in the um, Muhammad Ali movie with um, with Will Smith. Uh, Michael, yeah. Mann, uh, those those were voices I really enjoyed uh, hearing. And also, I I would love to see more about Sonny Liston. I wish that Walter Mosley could create a Showtime or HBO show about Sonny Liston. Uh, who is such an interesting 
character who kind of needs to be reclaimed. Uh, and remind sort of, me of the controversy over the Muhammad Ali movie with Will Smith because there was a there was quite a bit of pushback to that, and it did not. That might have been Will Smith's first misfire. What what was the controversy? I'm trying to remember. You're asking me a very personal question here, Arch, because um, I um, moved to Los Angeles in 2000 because Will Smith uh, hired me to follow him around and his be his biographer while he was training to become Muhammad Ali. Really? Yes. Uh, wow. <laughs> I was uh, I was a staff writer at Us Weekly at the time, uh -huh. and. Um, uh -huh. And he flew me out there. It was one of those things where, you know, a guy had my name on a placard at, at LA, <laughs> took me into a limo, drove me on to the Sony lot where Will uh -huh. was doing his first screen test as Muhammad Ali. And he came out to meet me. This was the first time I ever met him. Uh, and he um, spoke like the champ, like Ali. He was in no. dialect and in complete makeup. And he, uh -huh. you know, he, he, it was a job interview for me but he was doing it entirely in character. So after about two or three minutes, I kind of slipped into being a reporter, interviewing Ali, interviewing the champ. Uh, so I sort of forgot that I was uh, Oliver interviewing Will, and the two of us were doing characters. Um, he ended up um, hiring me and I followed him around for a while until the very controlling uh director of that film michael mann didn't like having me around and and got rid of me um mm. and uh but i ended up staying in los angeles uh and i've been here ever since uh that was uh 21 years ago um why was there pushback over over smith's film on ali what can't remember it? arch i mean um i i um I, I don't I think maybe I buried my head in the sand because I was so <laughs> upset about being thrown off the set. But I think perhaps it had something to do with the portrayal of um, of Islam uh, and the part uh, that I, Islam played in his life. I think that so uh, the Burns thing really is uh, all encompassing. And it's uh, I guess it's about five or six hours. Uh, and I would put that together with Malcolm X, the Spike Lee movie. It's hard to do a, you know, that's, that's, that is Burns' strength. It's hard to do a, a fictional by the, the Aretha Franklin movie. Yeah. Respect. I just walked out and thought that was lousy because I could feel uh, the, the controls on it. The, oh, uh, we can't, we can't go here. We can't tell this. We can't, let's just, we'll put one of her songs in. We'll be fine. I, I didn't feel like I was getting the real thing. And that's what you do get from Ali. It is nice that Citizen Hearst is not a Ken Burns documentary. Yeah. And I think PBS is realizing that they need some new voices. Well, I think that becomes particularly um, apparent with the Ali because while it's exhaustive and it's and they use the time of it well, um, mm -hmm. you know the rhythm of it at this point is so similar to, yeah. um, to the other rhythms of the uh, that you, Hemingway or yeah be, you know, because whatever. of because he was an epoch changing uh, figure. You need to change the rhythm of how you tell his story. You know, including the. Um, the narrator, uh, David Keith, who also narrated uh, his jazz, uh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, you know, it, it would have been nice to have, you know, 
Michael B. Jordan or someone younger, you know, um, or, or just having a different tone to, uh, to the proceedings and perhaps something, you know, I dare say it a little bit younger. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, let me mention uh, the Tony Awards for this weekend and the two big uh, uh, musical. The big musical is Moulin Rouge. The best play is The Inheritance. And, uh, you know, it's an odd thing to mention because it was a truncated uh, season. And usually the Tonys are in May anyway. And uh, the only thing that got my attention is they gave most of the awards on a streaming platform. Mm -hmm. And then they had a two hour uh, uh, concert on broadcast. And I'm just I'm wondering if if that is uh, the future of award shows, because uh, even the Emmys, you know, God, I just got so tired of that show and the Oscars were so bad. And just give the awards on uh, Amazon Prime or give the awards on uh, Peacock. And, right. and and not that not that broadcast counts anymore, but it's just like you know, just just throw them on, let them have their own niche. What do you think? It used to be right. I remember that they used to show half of um, the tone uh, the Tonys on PBS, and then they would switch it over to CBS uh, later uh -huh. on in the evening. So I think they've done variations of that in the in the past. But you know what you're talking about, uh, Arch, is the fact that. Um, these are increasingly niche experiences, right? They're yeah, not mass yeah. experiences in the in the yeah. same way. And I think for a lot of people, the highlights of the the Tony Awards were highlights for Broadway nerds. You know, were uh -huh. like for, for like Jennifer Holiday uh, uh, singing from Dreamgirls, or um, or uh, the longtime nominee Danny Burstein. You know, after seven years, uh, seven nominations, finally finally winning you know, uh, things that really felt satisfying for people who follow Broadway, but perhaps meant less to a general audience. Yeah. Uh, and, and perhaps it's not such a bad thing to feed those obsessives. And of course, um, those obsessives do end up driving the conversation on social media and such. So, you know, is it, are, are these increasingly niche? Yes, you know, yeah. but I think they always were a little bit, and this was really, this was really weird to have a show about live theater, you know, um, after none of us have been out of the house. <laughs> live theater. I, mean, one of the more I only go shows. to the movies if there's six people in the audience. No, I know. It, just, <laughs> it felt like uh, they were celebrating something from an ancient time. Or, you know, uh, so I think it was hard to judge uh, this particular tone. Well, speaking about niche, 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 uh, we are on Hound Radio, which which we are delighted to be uh, carried by, as well as Apple and iTunes and a few other uh, platforms. And uh, Lou Katz is in the control room making this possible. Lou, tell us all about The Hound. Well, the, the Hound has a bunch of uh, regularly scheduled features besides our adult contemporary music. And one of those is the World of Dogs. And uh, check out this segment on... Tails. Ooh. 
Pound Radio pauses the music for another wonderful look into the world of dogs with Faith Lapidus. When your dog sees you and starts to wag her tail, that means she's happy, right? Probably, but a tail wag can be much more than a greeting. It can tell you a lot about how she's feeling, especially when you pay attention to the rest of her body. If a dog's body is stiff and the only part moving is the tail, stay away. That dog does not want you to pet him. Look at the position of the tail. If it's tucked under the belly, that dog is scared. If it's loose or parallel to the floor, you're looking at a relaxed dog. But if the tail is held high, that's a sign of arousal that could be fear, anxiety, or aggression. Finally, consider how the tail is moving. Just because he's wagging his tail quickly doesn't mean he's excited. Check those other signs. With a stiff body and the tail held high, it could be stress. But one sure way of knowing your dog is happy is the helicopter tail, which wags round and round super fast in crazy little circles. And that will make you happy too. I'm Faith Lapidus for Hound Radio. Okay, let's mention a few things uh, that need to be remembered. Uh, Oliver, I'm sure you have some thoughts on Melvin Van Peebles who uh, passed away this week and uh, is celebrated for Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. I, I remember reading and hearing more about it than actually seeing it. I mean, listen, we're talking about a perhaps one of the most, uh, I mean, perhaps the, 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 the most significant independent filmmaker, certainly in terms of proving mm -hmm. the financial worthiness of independent film, but also um, tapping into an audience that is still being ignored in Hollywood and is still, um, you know, all of these years later in the African-American urban audience. And, um, and then and doing so in a way that felt like he was inventing the rules to his own game. You know, it didn't seem like he was playing someone else's game. Uh, and I think that anyone can find that inspiring uh, and, uh, and empowering. And plus the guy, you know, the, the guy was just a great raconteur, a great party, yeah, a great story artist, a great drinker. He's the father of Mario, who yeah. has uh, done very well. I, I remember more uh, his movie, uh, Watermelon Man, Right. From the early 70s, which sounds like something should have been a Richard Pryor movie. Guys, I found an old interview where Melvin's talking about the film timeline. Check this out. Watermelon Man, people getting 45 days, 90 days to shoot a film. Blah, 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 blah. And they gave me 23 days to shoot the film, setting me up. So I shot it in 21. Refresh my memory. Now, what's the movie about? A white guy wakes up one day and he's black but they play a black guy played the white guy in whiteface right and then had to face the world as a black man it was played for comedy and you know the early 70s need celebrating the the things i'm hearing now about wokeness and black lives matter and all they those things were bubbling in the early 70s and, uh, and were permeating the culture. And, and uh, it's, it's interesting for me to see us go back to them. And then, sadly, the 80s happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we well, had actually, revolution and we had, we had uh, corporate America kind of rear its uh, head and, and sort of uh, 
have its first stab at kind of uh, steering the conversation. But yes, you know, in those days, um, an independent uh, producer could um, book uh, a movie theater, uh, uh, put, put a movie theater and mm -hmm. just sell them mm -hmm. out. Uh, and, um, and there was a whole economy for these kinds of voices and these kinds of conversations that, um, that exists as less and less as, as we consolidate um, more and more. But yeah, yeah, Melvin Van was... Peebles uh, founded a theater in Detroit, and uh, word of mouth got the movie a uh, distributor. Mm -hmm. Now you can you can post it, post it on YouTube, and you're off and running. I don't know, and I it, the I irony is I don't know if as many people would find it that way now. Well, and the other thing is is that. Um, when money, uh, you know, you, you can count them the, the, the number of money that comes in through that window at the movie theater, uh, how the economics of YouTube and all of that works is a mystery to people, you, uh, you know, every view does not mean a dollar in your pocket right. Uh, so it doesn't, um, it doesn't mean the same thing. Uh, it's not it's not a, a figure like a like a football score that you can look at and show how dominant it is, you know, those clicks are something but they're not the same as dollars at the window of a movie theater. Well, let's see. Uh, the clock is ticking and the time is running down. So uh, what shall we recommend for this weekend? What are you recommending, Oliver? Well, I saw a couple of interesting movies last week, Arch, um, both of which deal in interesting ways with technology. One is going to be streaming in a couple of days on um, Netflix. It's called The Guilty, starring uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, where he plays oh. a... Um, cop who has been um uh, taken off the street and uh because of a uh, officer involved shooting and he's working a, a shift uh at 911 um and uh and gets uh some harrowing calls it's basically a one-man show in one set 911 this is emergency operator 625 i'm just interrupt okay sir i need to know where you are last name is this the fire department no ma'am you've reached 911 but i can connect you to fire just hold the line what does she look like she was tall pink hair in heels hey man can you tell me how long it's going to take directed by the action director um antoine fuqua and it was a um it's an interesting movie i'm not sure if it entirely works but jake gyllenhaal carries carries it off and it's one of those movies that you dream about uh, getting a script like that as a producer because it, it's just one actor and it takes place in one place. Um, yeah. And uh, the other one is a German film called I'm Your Man uh, about um, an academic who gets a, a robot who, uh, who is supposed to be her ideal companion. Oh, um, yes, it just opened. Yes, it just opened. Um, and it's a really, you know, it's it's one of those movies that reminds you of, you know, the dates you used to go on when you were younger. It's like a, it's like a <laughs> wonderful date film uh, where you have really interesting conversations afterwards um, oh. because it has to do with the nature of connection and um, and what it's like to um, to meet your ideal, uh, your, 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 the ideal set of traits that best matches with you. And sometimes that doesn't work, right? Sometimes that isn't enough. Um, it's a very interesting film uh, that um, I, uh, I definitely recommend seeking out. Oliver, I love when you're on this podcast and uh, I want you to come back more and more often. Uh, I just, I wanna recommend uh, Citizen Hearst on PBS and the Muhammad Ali documentary. And I just want to put in a plug for Ted Lasso. 
it just gets better and better and better. And they they are doing riffs on movies. Yes, they are. We are we are doing a riff on We'll Be Back Next Week. <laughs> Thank you, Lou. Archie. Always happy to be here. This is the Cats Podcasting System, where it's not just a podcast, but a podcast.